Welcome to the latest episode of Season 2 of Football Uncovered. In Season 1, we took you inside Blackburn, Leeds, Portsmouth and Liverpool, FIFA and a lot more. Heard about extraordinary stories of football chaos, cock-ups and outright corruption. This season, we've been delving inside eight more Premier League clubs, as well as having two special episodes. One about life after the Premier League, and one about the very future of club football at the highest level. I'm your host, Will Brazier, and with me on every episode is Sporting Intel's Nick Harris. Nick, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Really looking forward to this. I'm sure Laurie's got a lot of uh, good stories to tell us. Yes, um, it's not just me and Nick. This season we'll also be joined by a guest, usually a fan of the club we're talking about, or someone who has followed them very closely and knows all the inside stories. As well as sharing all the usual inside from the stories of the club, we'll be looking, of course, at the owners of the club, how they came to be, where they've taken the club so far, but most importantly, what's next? Today's guest is Laurie Whitwell, not just a fan of the club we are here to talk about today, but also the Manchester United correspondent for The Athletic. You can find Laurie at... Twitter at Laurie Whitwell and he's also a regular on the Athletic Pod about Manchester United of course talk of the devils Laurie how are you I'm good well thank you for that build up and, and hopefully I can uh, live up to Nick's expectations for this one uh, you're a Manchester United fan from Manchester I was going to say how does that happen but it sounds quite clear to be honest <laughs> Yeah, well, to be fair, Stockport, so I suppose, you know, Edgeley Park, I could see the floodlights of Stockport County's ground from my house where my parents still live, but um, my dad was a United fan, so he took us to Old Trafford as a kid. And then journalistically, obviously, the athletics absolutely booming at the moment, but how did, how did you get into that path? Yeah, uh, so obviously worked at the Daily Mail for um, eight, eight or nine years, maybe, and um, that, that was through the graduate scheme that they have, which I think is really valuable. Obviously, me and Nick were sort of colleagues at that time, weren't we, Nick? You know, we were. Wimbledon coverage that we did together and, and various other bits um, and so I was covering the Midlands at the time did, did Leicester winning the title which was obviously absolutely bonkers and, and Wales getting to the semis of the Euros um, and then the Athletic started and I sought out whether it was a possibility and then Alex Kajelski who I'd worked with at the Mail previously he's the editor-in-chief um, in the UK and he said actually would you be up for covering Manchester United and that made a load of sense for me because my family friends are up in Manchester and it, it just fitted really neatly Love that Nick, what connections have you got to United? Uh, not a lot. I mean, I'm very grateful that United uh, showed up on the greatest day in sporting history, the 1st of May 1976, to play a supporting role uh, as as they were taught a football lesson as, as the club I support, Southampton, won the FA Cup. I don't think it's any coincidence that that is the last time the Queen turned up at an FA Cup final and presented the trophy. She didn't need to see any more football after that <laughs> glorious day. So there's that connection. Otherwise, just covering United on and off the pitch for the last sort of 25 years. Um, Laura, obviously we're here to talk about football, but sort of the business behind that as well and the Glazers, the good, the bad, the ugly of them. I sort of superficially know the story, but what's sort of been some of the biggest turning points of that tenureship over the last 16 years? Yeah, I mean, obviously it was such a, a toxic situation when they did um, come in and, uh, you know, the leverage buyout and the, the United are still feeling the effects of. Um, but in terms of the turning points, I suppose, since they took over, yeah, the financial crisis, I think, was a big one. It, you know, themselves and Liverpool were quite close in terms of how they were owned uh, with Gillette and Hicks. And Nick, you know loads about this situation, don't you? And, and the fact that, I think the Glazers were perhaps fortunate in the way that the financial market shifted and that enabled them to keep paying back the extortionate 
interest payments on the loans. And then once they'd got rid of the, the PIC loans, um, which were the ones that eye-watering interest rates, they, they were pretty much okay because the commercial strategy that they employed, which was different to what it had been previously, where United had kind of had a few commercial partners, but of high value. So they kind of felt that a relationship should be um, worth an awful lot. The Glazers took a different approach and said, we'll have loads of commercial partners where, you know, the payments might be less, but because we've got so many, ultimately the overall revenue will be massively increased. And, and that has proven to be the case. So lots of different, you know, aspects to it, but ultimately the Glazers are here to stay, I think. Are those commercial deals worldwide while we've seen some of the greatest adverts involving footballers uh, the world has ever seen? Which ones are you talking about in specific, Will? Are you, I mean, there was sort of a wine one, wasn't there? There was noodles, uh, tyre manufacturers. Yeah, Wayne Rooney. Was it a, an Avengers film or something? <laughs> Quite possibly. I feel like there was a Pringles one as well at some point. Or, or like a, a dip, you know, there are other versions, obviously, of, of such a potato-based <laughs> snack. But some kind of Mexican crisp was, was involved, I think. Uh, There's a Turkish airline one wasn't there yes. yes i can't remember what happened on it it wasn't quite up there with the venki's chicken nuggets one or whatever but it was was it was ronaldo in there or tevez turkish airlines rooney yeah i remember rooney being and i don't know why he's starring role in most of these but you know maybe he's got a future in action can we just go back to laurie as a fan laurie you've got you know you were a young man in arguably the greatest recent season of united's history 99 treble season Tell us a bit about that and, and some of your memories as a fan, so where you're coming from. Let's go back to football. Tell us about some of your best memories of that 99 season. Yeah, I suppose, and to be fair, this does kind of influence my view of the Glazers because, and I suppose that's where I have to be delicate in, you know, being a journalist and, and then being a fan because the, the, the experiences that I've had with Manchester United have shaped you know, who I am really and how I view football and how much enjoyment I get from it. And, you know, the family connection with my father and my sister and my, my mom, um, and other family members. But, um, so, so that's where it all stems from really. So if you've been in the terraces and cheering goals, such as, you know, we, we had in, in 98, 99, then it does influence then when owners come in and kind of, you know, see it very much as a vehicle for their own means. Um, but yeah, 98, 99, what a season, um, we were able to get, tickets to the final in 99 obviously in the new camp for the Champions League and because they did the way they did the tickets at that point was you know you had to get the stubs from every cup game I think it was and we'd gone to I'm pretty sure it was York City in, in like the League Cup might be Nottingham Forest actually I should have done my research on this shouldn't I but because we'd gone to this match um, we, we managed to get this stub that no that nobody else well a fair few people didn't have so we managed to we queued outside Old Trafford and, and got the tickets and it was all official myself my dad my mum my sister my cousin Fran so we went out to Barcelona on the official trip and as soon as we landed my dad was really keen to go to the beach so we like went on the metro and we were like really excited and and then it was sort of all a bit of a crush we tried to get on this train then didn't get on it and then we got on the next one after that and then a few stops later my dad just sort of patted his trousers and said uh, I've lost my wallet <sighs> and the wallet had all our tickets in all our money in yeah. yeah I was distraught I think I cried and uh, we came back we were trying to search all the the bins just in case they hadn't noticed you know that the tickets were in the wallet um, and we were you know trying to figure out how this was gonna you know end well <laughs> at all and then fortunately, basically it was a long day and there was a travel agency that had kind of sold tickets as part of a package. And there were loads of people there that hadn't actually got tickets for the game. And there were loads of people sort of milling around and it was it got a bit taste of the atmosphere and like Spanish police were rocking up on horseback. 
But we managed to find a guy that was um, in a suit from United and told him our story. We had the flight tickets, had all the official kind of documentation to prove that we were United fans that had legitimate tickets. And he said, okay, leave it with me. I'll see what I can do. You know, we were in this situation with these fans and, and it was getting a bit fraught. And um, my dad said, listen, we're going to try and get into the stadium. We're just going to try and do it. First guy we got to was like a police handler with riot gear and Alsatians on either hand. And I was thinking there's no chance we're getting through here. My dad doesn't speak Spanish eventually managed to sort of convince the guy to let us through. I think because we're a family, we like young kids. I was sort of 11, 12 at the time. Um, he sort of took pity on us, went through, got to the, the first gate. There was like a big scrum of loads of United fans. And um, some fans were having tickets ripped up in their faces by the stewards because they said they were forgeries. Managed to go around a couple of gates and found a gate that had some United staff on and, and the guy that we'd earlier told our story to in, in a suit. And he was sort of selling tickets to fans. And my mum went ballistic and said, you know what we've been through, you know, we, we, you know, and uh, he basically just crumbled instantly, gave us three tickets that he had left. They were all dotted around in the stadium uh, and said, you know, here you go. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Is this a ticket town? No, no, it was, it was a, it worked for United. Okay. I mean, I hope I'm not like landing anybody in here. I, don't, I hope nobody can like identify this guy and like, he's going to go, you know. It was David was, May, wasn't it? He was definitely there. We, <laughs> we know that for a fact from the pictures. Um, so my mum and my sister said, listen, you guys more into football than we are. You go through. So it was like at one point it was me and my dad and my cousin Fran who were sort of ready to go in and, and my sister and my mum were going to watch on the big screen outside that I'd kind of advocated. I'd got a bit nervous and said, oh, we'll just watch it on the big screen outside. And then this other steward overheard this dilemma and said, no, leave it with me. And he went around each turnstile at, at the new camp and managed to find a guy that would let us just jump over. And so all five of us went in, jumped over this turnstile, we're jumping over different bits of the new camp and we eventually emerge out into the second tier. And usually you go out and obviously the crowd is, is sparse and it gradually you know builds up. But because we were so late, the whole crowd was there and they were just bringing in the, um, the pre-match entertainment, you know, the inflatables. And it was an incredible sight to sort of walk out into this full new camp. Obviously it's an incredible stadium and um, it was just a wow moment. And, Obviously, the the match happened. We were kind of stood just on the steps, and a Spanish steward was was trying to get us to move and sit down, and and he was trying to get the whole stand to sit down. To be fair, but you know, you got forty thousand United fans, and they weren't in a mood to sit down, so it was fine, sort of just mingling in amongst them. Um, and at half time, my dad realized that he wasn't wearing his lucky jeans that he planned to wear. He'd like not washed these jeans all year. You know, <laughs> and we'd been at Liverpool two one. We'd been at obviously the Arsenal game, um, and he decided to go down at half time. Uh, didn't have any change for the the toilets. You had to have change for the toilets. Sort of topped over that as well. Got in his jeans. Obviously, he claims that you know that's the reason then that the uh, injury tie happened. <laughs> He had his jeans on him. I can't really remember. <laughs> he must have, he definitely changed into jeans. But I'm thinking like, what What were we doing? We had like a big banner as well at one point. Me and my sister had made this big banner that we planned to like unravel. So we must have had that with us. So we managed to keep all these other items that were obviously inconsequential, but lose so the main... did you stay the night then? No, no, it was in and out. So um, the celebration afterwards were brilliant. We've got loads of pictures of like, you know, the players lifting the trophy. And, but no, we, we left the stadium dancing around and, and the, the flight was like that that night or something like early in the morning or, or something like that. Um, and then when we landed back in Manchester, we saw the steward that had helped all five of us get in. And my dad went up and gave him like a massive hug and then sent a letter to United saying, 
just thank you so much. Um, I think he somehow managed to get him a bottle of champagne or something. Um, and then a few weeks later, somebody, a United fan from Malta, sent us my dad's wallet back because he'd found it um, outside the new camp. And it, it had, yeah, it had his driver's <laughs> license in with a couple of pictures of me and my sister. Oh my and that, God. And that was it. Everything else was gone. What yeah. a night. I mean, that yeah. is a fantastic story, isn't it? <laughs> Let's go back to the Glazers, shall we? Yeah, I mean, when they first come in, I thought it was quite interesting because obviously I only know like top level Laurie and quite superficially, but obviously when they first came in, there was all the chat around the loans and how they were like, you know, bankrupt in Manchester United and everything. But is that not the, the case anymore? Because I just remember like the rise of like um, FC United and, and everything like that. It just seemed to be like a real split and division yeah. at the time when they first came in. It was really nasty, actually. Uh, and for the piece that we did, I, I spoke to Andy Walsh, who was part of that movement at the time for FC United. And, you know, some people that left the club and went and supported FC United were seen as traitors because they were leaving Manchester United behind. Whereas some people that were still supporting Manchester United going to games and ultimately, you know, feeding the Glazers' profits were seen as traitors for that reason. So it was a, a really horrible split. Um, and the burden that they've put on United when you add it all up, I mean, we sort of did the sums at least, and we thought it was 1.5 billion in terms of interest payments, um, dividend payments, um, and, and the debt that is still on the club, you know, in total as, as to what the Glazer ownership um, has, has cost Manchester United. But, um, and people, you know, that uh, know the accounts very well will say that actually right now, the Glazers now, they're not really inhibiting Manchester United um, because the revenues are so vast that they can spend money. Listen, they're obviously not owned by a state like Manchester City or PSG. So really their their wealth is minute compared to what they can actually um, spend on players if they really wanted to, um, FFP allowing. Um, But the way that the Glazers now own the club, the interest payments every year are manageable for for that level of, of revenue that Manchester United gets. And, you know, Edward Wood has argued that they have spent the most money net for the last last sort of three years cumulatively on transfers. So I think it's got to a stage now with the Glazers where for some people it's um it's difficult to see, you know, dividends coming out of the club when they're also reporting COVID has hit them, you know, very, very hard. Um and, and revenues are obviously down for that. Um so you know, should you really be still taking dividends? Um I mean selling shares and then not putting that back into the club, I, I I would argue that does betray the the, the essence of the Glazers' ownership. It, it's to make themselves money, which is fine. You know, that is the corporate world. It's it's the, the way that Manchester United went when they became a PLC. You know, that was always open to the possibility. Um, but I would argue that if you were an owner that's really targeting trophies or, or rather titles, that that is money that United could do with because the net debt has increased, you know, in this last year with, with COVID being the way it is. They've had to extend the credit uh, facility so that they've got a bit more cash in the bank. So they've got, they've got about 80 million cash, whereas a couple of years ago they had about 300 million. Now, admittedly, they spent that on players. So Harry Maguire, Bruno Fernandes, that's come out of the cash. But that would only be... Uh, 20 million pounds of cash if they hadn't taken 60 million pounds of credit with this recent um, sort of situation developing. So I would say that with Avram Glazer selling his shares and not putting that back into the club, um, 
that betrays the fact that actually you're in it to make money for yourselves. Fine. But let's not pretend that it's, you know, you, you, you kind of owners that are absolutely targeting trophies because we've seen before with owners, they've put money into the club when they've needed it. I was going to say, it, it's easy to forget uh, now, sort of 16 years on from the takeover, how important the role of a racehorse was <laughs> in the fact that the Glazers ended up owning Manchester United. Maybe younger listeners won't, won't be familiar with the story of Rock of Gibraltar, who was like a, a group one winning uh, thoroughbred racehorse, you know, who became the 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 central figure in a in a major sort of row between two Irish racing magnates, John Magnier and J.P. McManus, um, also known as the Coolmore Mafia after their Coolmore stud in Ireland, and Sir Alex Ferguson, um, who thought that he owned half of this racehorse, and um, he didn't, in fact, own half the racehorse. He'd been given. Um, he was kind of lent the ownership so that when the racehorse won or whatever, he could go along and, and be the owner for the day. And that eventually it was turned out that he'd been given some of the breeding rights to the horse, but he didn't own it. And this became a really, really bitter dispute, which in the normal run of things wouldn't have been a big deal. But the fact was Magnier and McManus owned a big chunk of Manchester United through a company called Cubic Expression. And ultimately they became a thorn in Ferguson's side and a thorn in the side of the United board. And ultimately, they ended up selling their crucial stakeholding to the Glazer family that allowed the Glazers to get uh, into a position where they could take over the club. I don't know if that's the sort of thing that that you remember at the time, Laurie. Very much so, really. And um, the irony being that Ferguson had brought J.P. McManus and, and John Magnier to United to kind of protect himself because at the time he was, he was friends with them and he realised that it was useful to have people owning shares in the club that were allies. Um, and then obviously that flipped and it became a diff, you know, a, the totally opposite situation. And it was, it was fraught, wasn't it, for a, a long period of time, a good year. And Ferguson opposed the, the Glazer takeover. You know, they fought, you know, against it. David Gill is publicly on record saying that it was, it were debt is the the road to ruin, and it was a dangerous path for United to go down. Um, so they, there was you know it was pushback against it for sure. Um, and yeah, the Rock of Gibraltar thing. I mean, you know, it was. He, he, I remember going to the book launch for his autobiography after he retired, and there was a question about it from the audience, and it got very short shrift from Ferguson. And there's only like a very small mention of it in his in his book, isn't there? And I, I think it's a very delicate area for anyone to sort of try and nudge nudge about uh, with, with Ferguson. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously still got his love for, for racehorses. He was at Aintree, wasn't he, um, at the weekend, getting a, a hat-trick of, of winners in Liverpool. Uh, yeah. and, and JP McManus owns the winning Grand National horse, right? Manila Times, I think. Absolutely, uh, yeah. So it, it's still kind of relevant, you know, this, this dynamic. I, I think it's worth remembering that from the takeover in 2005 until 2010, there was a real sense of jeopardy and potential peril around the way they'd done the deal. They'd they'd put a couple of hundred million pounds at most of their own money into what was a £790 million takeover. And then they'd borrowed various tranches of cash, including some really, really dangerous pick paying kind loans, which at one point had annual interest of 17%. And this was described as a ticking time bomb. So they were paying back tens and tens of millions of pounds. And 
if they got to the point where they wouldn't be able to refinance those loans on a more sensible basis, there was this sense of peril that the club could have could have gone tits up. So some fans were obviously so disenchanted they went off and started their own club, FC United of Manchester. Other fans who remained were very much Man United fans still of the club, if not the owners, and they began the, the Love United, Hate Glazer campaign. That's the, the LUHG slogans that you could see on lampposts and graffiti around the city, stickers, uh, the green and gold campaign campaign so for five years this went on the very sort of real idea that the Glazers were totally out of control even David Gill privately was the although he was working with them as the CEO of the club he was he was scared that they were too aggressive in terms of needing to to squeeze all the money they could out of commercial deals in order to pay off these loans and arguably the peak anger at the Glazers was probably early 2010 when the club's debts had increased to more than 700 million quid um, by early March, the Red Knights group of prominent United fans made it known they wanted to launch a buyout. That was never going to happen for various reasons, although it was led by a Goldman Sachs chief economist, Jim O'Neill, who was a United fan. Um, it was never going to happen, not least because the Glazers were totally unwilling to sell, but it galvanised the fans against the Glazers. And I don't know if you remember, but I think it was March 2010 when David Beckham, then playing for Milan, came back to Old Trafford, uh, Milan got spanked 4-0 in a Champions League game and Beckham uh, left the pitch taking a green and gold scarf from a Manchester United fan and draping it around his neck. You know, that was kind of absolute PR disaster for the Glazers. You've got this iconic figure of David Beckham now aligning himself with the Love United Hate Glazer campaign at a point when the debts were perilously, dangerously threatening the club. Um, even some of the Glazers' closest advisors were starting to worry. And one of those advisors was a guy called Tessin Nayani, who was a banker who helped them do the deal in the first place. And he wrote a book about it all this years later. And um, um, he was worried that night. He rang Joel that night and said, oh my God, have you seen the pictures? Have you seen David Beckham's just put a green and gold scarf around his neck? This is just PR disaster for us. And Joel apparently said, nah, I'm not worried because uh, people are talking about us. And why are they talking about us? Because we're Manchester United. Let them talk. We're fine. And so the Glazers didn't care. And ultimately they got out of it because later that year they did in fact refinance the loans. And, and to cut a long story short, these perilous, paying kind loans were refinanced into a way that was affordable it would still leak loads and loads of money out of Manchester United over the years as Laurie put a figure on it now one and a half billion or something but the real and present danger to Manchester United as an entity was kind of ended at that point at the end of um, 2010 and as we've said and as I've showed you know in, in the stuff I sent you earlier for all the brouhaha around the Glazer family in the first five years of their ownership they came second first 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 second won the league cup in 2006 2009 2010 the FA Cup in 2007 the Champions League in 2008 and the turnover more than doubled so you're left with this conflicting situation of people saying well we hate the Glazers and we hate the way they're running the club but they were still being successful on the pitch and off it I just find it really interesting that success though because uh, there were so many rumours over that period as well where Sir Alex Ferguson was rumoured to be retiring early and, and leaving the club I know and, and this is very hypothetical but if, if he had gone at that time and we'd have gone I don't know straight into the Moyes era which to put it kindly wasn't as fruitful could that have 
led a sort of different course of history. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's completely hypothetical, but yeah, if Fergie had gone, say, after winning the Champions League in 2008, years before they managed to refinance these dangerous loans, and then the on-pitch performance had fallen off a cliff at that point when they were also in financial difficulties, goodness knows what could have happened. I mean, it didn't happen, so we can only speculate. But yeah, things might have turned out very, very differently. As it was, Fergie stayed till 2013, um, and the Glazers were kind of home and dry by that point in terms of the ownership of the club and the stability financially. But the whole issue of Fergie, I mean, Laurie, you're a fan. I mean, anybody can acknowledge that Alex Ferguson is, is one of the greatest managers in the history of football what does he mean to you as a Manchester United fan yeah um, well he was the alchemist wasn't he in that period so even though United were hemorrhaging money as you said Nick uh, and you know there was no value in the market as Ferguson used to repeatedly say and he never you know after they took over he never publicly went against the Glazers his you know, mastery of people managing and understanding squad development. It did get tense, didn't it? In that 2004, 5, 5, 6, when United didn't win the title, it looked like Ferguson was, you know, was maybe, had he done? Was he done? You know, um, he came back in such stirring fashion, 2006, 7. Um, but no, as, as a fan, I mean, listen, you know, I, in that part of my life, you can, you know, there's so many memories that I've got that, that he's created, you know, joyous moments. Obviously, I've touched on a few, but just the way he was, you know, the, the fact that he, incredible charisma, um, very sharp, very, you know, could be brutal with what he said um, to people. Um, but, I, you know, you kind of wanted that because he was your guy, you know, at Manchester United, he, he was the guy fighting for you tooth and nail and he, he would do and say certain things that you would like, you know, if you were against him, you'd think you've gone off the rails there. But, you know, some of the targets that he picked were precise and the way he spoke about football, you just I don't know you felt a warmth I think for the game through him absolutely and post Vergie I mean you look at the league finishes you've got Moyes and then Giggs of course famous team talks from Ryan Giggs in that 13-14 season that led them I was against Southampton seventh, wasn't it yeah and then uh, Van Gaal fourth and then fifth in 15 and 16 Mourinho six in his first season league finish albeit win the League Cup and the Europa League and then he got runners up in 2018 and then you've got Ollie's first season, which was Mourinho's last season, sixth. And then last season, you've got third place and, you know, it, things look to be on the upturn. But since Fergie left, it's been pretty underwhelming, hasn't it? Well, this is what I find positive about Solskjaer, at least, in that this will be the first time, you know, touch wood, that United will qualify for the Champions League twice in a row based on league position since Ferguson ended. So obviously, you know, Jose Mourinho did it with winning the Europa League and then finishing second. But this is sort of a, a sign, I think, of consistency in terms of, you know, third and second. If if United do finish second, which looks, you know, likely, it's not where they want to be. They want to be winning titles and Solskjaer has said that, but it's not a bad bit of progress, I think, from where Solskjaer took over. So I think that is to be, you know, very much in the positive column, obviously, you know, the semi-final thing, he needs to get past the semi-final. Europa League, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, you know, it looks like they're going to get past Granada and, and you know, they've got Ajax and Sol Roma in the semi-final. So if he could win the Europa League this season and finish second, I actually think that's a really good season. Nobody would have predicted that because people would have said Liverpool. And okay, Liverpool have, have come down an awful lot from last season. So, you know, it's not all United's improvement, but they should end up finishing with a, a good 
number of points more than last season. So it was 66 points last season. They're on 63 points right now. They've got Burnley at the weekend and then six games after that. So you'd think they'd you know get mid-70s at least. And I think that's at least a good barometer of, of success. And and I think that's what Solskjaer's getting at. You know, he, he got a load of stick. I don't know what you thought about this, Nick or Will, but when he came out um, and said, sometimes a trophy is an ego thing for a manager. And, and clearly you can read between the lines and, and think about which managers he might be referring to. But his point, he wasn't saying, I don't want to win trophies at Manchester United. Obviously he does. He said that repeatedly. And I think, you know, the fact that he's got to semi-finals in basically all, you know, League Cups, FA Cups. Okay, they went out to, in the quarterfinal to Leicester recently. But, you know, they make good runs in every single cup competition that they enter. I think that's a sign that he does want to win these competitions. But he's obviously got to balance it against, you know, with the squad not being as, as deep in qualities as he needs or, or would like. Um, and that goes back to the Glazers, I suppose. And we'll look at what they do in the summer and, and whether last summer was actually ultimately a, a good summer of, of business. Um, but that's why he has to balance things, you know, and, and he does have to rotate his team. And that means that they do sometimes lose. And, and maybe they aren't quite as good as City who, who have beaten United, you know, in two successive League Cup semifinals, for example. Um but I think that was his point about actually league position is really the real gauge because if they keep qualifying for the Champions League, yes, the Glazers will be happy because as we saw in the most recent quarterly results, Champions League broadcast revenue was pretty much the reason why they actually turned a profit. You know, it was £40 million more than what they got the previous quarter because of the Europa League. Uh, so that was a huge amount of money. And um, so, yeah, they'll be happy in that regard. But then that means that United can reinvest and, you know, it's hopefully a, a virtuous circle where they keep qualifying for the Champions League and they can keep adding to the squad. And ultimately they then get to the point where they can win a title or they can win, you know, trophies that really are meaningful. So I think that's what Solskjaer was getting at with his, his, his statement that, you know, trophies aren't necessarily the absolute measure of quality because you can look at Arsenal, for example, winning the FA Cup and, and then mid-table. Is that progress? I guess to finish up, we, ha- we have to sort of really ask, what is the point of Manchester United in 2021? What are they? What What can they be? Can they return to being serial winners of the league title and challengers to the deep stages of the Champions League? Is that something we can realistically expect of them in the next few years under Oli Gunnar Solskjaer? That is the big question, isn't it? You know, as we reflected on earlier, you know, Solskjaer, he's, he's not got the pedigree of Jose Mourinho. He didn't come in with two Champions League you know, victories, didn't come in with the pedigree of Lou van Gaal um, and his success with Ajax and Bayern and Barcelona. Um, but he does understand the club and football and he, you know, I think he is improving. I think as a manager, you know, he, he understands um, what it does take uh, to to win those kind of things, and I think his recruitment's been pretty good. You know, I'd, I'd, I I accept that we sort of go through phases, don't we, where we decide whether Dan James is a, a United quality player or not, or whether Harry Maguire it was worth eighty million pounds or not. But I think you have to say that okay, you know, he's he's brought Harry Maguire and he plays every week. He's brought Aaron Wan-Bissaka and he plays every week. He's brought Bruno Fernandes and he's cha- he's changed the club. He's managed to get Paul Pogba to a place where he's actually playing the best football of his Manchester United career. Um, He's negotiated the Dean Henderson, David De Gea situation well, and now it looks like Henderson's got the gloves. And he's but he's been delicate with that, and, and not kind of dismissed a player that's served United so well um, too quickly, even though he was, you know, in a, in a bad patch of form. Um, so I think he's he's handled situations adeptly, and I would back him to bring in players that would enhance Manchester United and get them to that place. Um, it's just whether or not United 
you know, we'll actually go and spend that money in the right way at the right moment because we had last season, you know, the long running saga of Jaden Sancho. Um, clearly that was Solskjaer's number one and United were trying to do that. But realistically, they were never going to come to the situation that, that the price tag that Dortmund wanted. And then ultimately it left them, you know, sort of frantically trying to bring in players on deadline day, one being Edinson Cavani, who's turned out to be a really good signing, but he missed the first month of the season when United lost the first match. You know, he came on as a sub against Arsenal, which United lost, and that was their third defeat of the season. They've only lost four games in the Premier League all season. So if he'd have been, if United had gone, okay, Jane Sancho's too much, we can... Uh, go and go for Edinson Cavani, bring him in first game of the season, bang. Those results could have been different and this could actually be a genuine title race, you know, rather than United sort of in the distance. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I think it would be a good story for United, for fans, for football, if uh, the Glazers and Edward would let him have some time to see what he can do rather than, you know, spending more money on massive appointments and severance pays for supposedly much bigger managers it would be a good story and I think to finish on this you have to look at the fact that United as we record today if they don't win any trophies this season the fact that they'll be on a run of four years which will be their longest trophyless run since the 1980s is it yeah 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 since since Fergie since 1990 yeah with Fergie in the FA Cup that in itself is ridiculous the fact that a four years without a trophy is seen (laughs) as like this horrendous drought Jesus Southampton you know we won the Johnson's paint obviously which was huge and before that the 1976 FA Cup final and here we go here's the rosette from the 76 rosette, FA Cup yeah. final right there and I do think you, you should have won the 2017 League oh. Cup final Nick I was there that day and, and, and Southampton were the better two, team was we 2-0 down then 2-2 and then 3-2 yeah, yeah. yeah. and Gabbiadini then- yeah yeah, late winner. It was last yeah, time. oh Jesus. Anyway, so the fact that you know a four-year trophy drought potentially is is the worst in decades tells its own story about Manchester United. Laurie, do you think as on the other side of things as well? I find it really interesting, like the the Darren Fletcher appointment as well, because I think a lot of criticism was labelled at Edward Wood for doing. Obviously, commercially, he's an absolute wizard, but when he was sort of looking after the football side of things, that was when it was the most level of criticism was levelled at him. Is that almost been quite refreshing to see that they're coming up to date with that appointment? We'll see how it shakes out just because I'm still reserved on my judgment of that until I actually see it in action because it's sort of easy to say these guys have got, you know, he's a technical director, he's a football director. What does that actually mean in practice? Let's see, you know, uh, we'll wait until the summer and, and how it all emerges because, you know, I speak to people and will certain agents be calling up John Murta or will they actually still try and go to Ed Woodward or even Joel Glazer to get deals done? Um, how much will Darren Fletcher be involved in those decisions and how much autonomy would he have? I think it's really good that you've got a guy like that, though, in, in that kind of position, just because he obviously understands football, you know, to the nth degree. And, um, and he cares for the club. You know, people sort of roll their eyes when you say, oh, he cares for the club, he's got the club at heart. But ultimately, what is a club if you've not got people that actually want to do well for them and, and understand that bond with the supporters? And I think Darren Fletcher absolutely does does do that. And, and it'd be good to have him in situations where United are trying to sign a player and he can be the first person that this player sees, you know, and he, he goes into the room and says, listen, this is how I would use you in United squad. Um, because I think too often it's been a case of, 
um, a corporate background. You know, Matt Judge, um, you know, I'm not calling him out for this, but his, his background was in banking. You know, he knew Ed Woodward from JP Morgan and, and Bristol University. So it's uh, that was his background and he's done multi-million pound deals in that section. And that's why he can handle these numbers and stay cool in those kind of debates, you know, with agents. But he he wasn't somebody that could then talk to the player about how he would, you know, evolve at the club and, and where they would see him. Hopefully Darren Fletcher can be that person. So yeah, I think it's both interesting appointments, John Murtagh and, and Darren Fletcher, but I suppose we'll we'll see how it shakes out. And I th- I think with Ed Woodward, I mean, I've you know done done a few little bits with him and and obviously Nick, you you know him from before. And I think he is somebody that is very personable, does does care, you know, does want United to succeed. And he's in this sort of position where um, he has to also balance, you know, what the Glazers want. You know, he, he was the guy that engineered this takeover. And so for a lot of fans, he'll, he'll never be forgiven for that. You know, he was the guy that was, was the, the catalyst, you know, was the guy that actually made this happen, you know, managed to figure out the numbers that ultimately got the loans that, that the Glazers then used to, to buy the club. Um, but I think you have to accept that now he is genuinely a person that wants United to win titles. Um, uh, but, you know, whether or not he makes the decisions that actually really do enable the club to do that, you know, like I say, with John Murta being appointed, um, we'll see, I suppose. So there we go. Another one in the bag. Massive thanks to Laurie Whitwell. Go over to Twitter and check him out on The Athletic. Thanks to Nick Harris, as always. You can follow him at Sport and Intelligence. And if you want to help us out even more, go over to iTunes, rate and review this podcast five stars because it helps us out enormously. We'll be back very soon. Cheers.